Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 27 of the Lawyerist Podcast, a weekly podcast about lawyering and law practice. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or using your favorite podcast app. Our favorite is Overcast, or you can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. If you enjoy our show, we would really appreciate it if you take a few seconds and give us a rating in iTunes. We recently published my new guide to computer security, about which Andrew Cabasso of JurisPage says, check out this guide and secure your damn computers. Find out more and get it at lawyerist.com slash guides. Use the code podcast to get a 50% discount. Just enter the word podcast into the checkout form and you'll get 50% off. Sponsoring today's podcast is Ruby Receptionists. If you aren't already a customer, you should totally give it a try. Sign up for a free trial at callruby.com slash lawyerist, and Ruby will answer your phones for free for two weeks. Um, so this week, uh, there was an interesting article from Lee Rosen at divorcediscourse.com. We've mentioned Lee a couple of times, I think, in the podcast. Yeah. Um, he had an article on how to solve the, your receivables problem forever. Um, and it's a really interesting article um, mentioning a few law firms he knows that have tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars in receivables and what a burden that can be for solo and small firm lawyers to spend all their time collecting for work they've already done. And he has a magic solution. And it's like, so this is the thing. I, I Everything he says is just should be gospel for lawyers because – there's just no reason why any lawyer should be struggling with receivables. It's one of the most mind-bogglingly bad business management things that law firms do, and it drives me crazy. So would you care to reveal the magic solution to solving your receivables problem forever? Yeah, I mean, boiling it down, don't ever work unless you've already been paid. Don't ever do any work for anyone unless you've been paid. And what that means is if you're going to charge a flat fee, get it up front, contingent fee, obviously that you're getting paid when you sign the contingent fee agreement, or an hourly fee, get a retainer. And the important thing about an hourly retainer is bill regularly so that you're on top of it and you understand when the initial advance has been exhausted. And if they don't refresh the retainer, then you're done. You should be you, Your retainer agreement with that client should say that you're automatically terminated if they don't refresh the retainer. That is them signaling to you that they are firing you. So if this is so easy, why doesn't everyone do it? <laughs> That's a really good question. I mean, I this was something that one of the one of my early mentors admonished me. He said, "Don't ever work without getting paid." And so I never did. I I think I've had a grand total of like five hundred dollars in outstanding bills uh, in my entire practice, and that was just because the very first client I took, I was so desperate that I let them pay me the retainer in two chunks. Uh, and every time I've tried to do something like that, it's bitten me. And so I never have. And I, I think it's just that lawyers are afraid to just drop, you know, lay down the law and say, no, you pay me or we're not going to screw around with it. I, I mean, I actually went so far as for a long time, if if my retainer was under $3,000, you had to bring it to me in cash because I was tired of dealing with bounce checks. 
So do you think the hang-up is more around having tough conversations with clients or more about how you write and structure your retainer agreements? I think it's more about those tough conversations. Because if you think about it, it's a client walks in your office and they're willing to sign up for this big case. And you're thinking, wow, I can make a ton of money off of this client. And then they say, but I'm going to need a week to get you that check. And you're thinking about how much money you think you can make, but you may never get that check. And, you know, I, I think it's that's why it's so important to just be like, all right, well, in a week, I'll be your lawyer. But right now I'm not your lawyer. And if there's a deadline, then you'd better hurry up and find that money. All right. I think that's it. The, so the bottom, the golden rule is never work, never do any work unless you've been paid for. Never even call yourself someone's lawyer unless you've been paid. And for those of you interested in reading more, we will uh, link to this post in the show notes to the podcast um, and you can read it there. So this week's guest is Omar Harede, who is a Canadian lawyer who has a really cool law firm incubator that he's going to talk to me about. Hi, Omar. How are you today? Not bad. How are you? Good. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. So, as is my tradition here, I would like you to give your own short bio. Tell us who you are and why we're talking to you. My name is Omar Haredi. I'm a lawyer uh, who practices in, primarily in civil litigation in Toronto. I'm also the head of a legal incubator called Fleet Street Law. And a big part of our mandate with Fleet Street Law, in addition to getting uh, small and solo practitioners up and running, is really to brainstorm and facilitate uh, solutions for access to justice, which is a big part of what we'll be talking about today. Very cool. So tell me more about Fleet Street then. What what does an incubator mean and what does it look like? Well, we're looking at people who typically have just graduated law school or recently left their law firm. They're setting up their practice, and we provide them uh, a variety of resources to get them up and running. And then once they're up and running, we really want to push them out the door. So it's not really a profit-making model. Uh, it was never the intent from this idea to try to generate any revenue. It was a way to give back to the bar. What I find so fascinating about my involvement with it, though, is that it puts me on the ground in terms of the issues that practitioners are facing, as well as many of the issues that their clients are facing, because most of them have what we call public-facing practices. So they're servicing the public. They're not typically servicing large corporations or very wealthy clients. So uh, so how big is it? How many, how many recent graduates do you have in the incubator at any one time? Well, it fluctuates, right? So it depends on what we're doing and um, how many people are in our model at the current time. So right now we have about half a dozen. We keep it small. Uh, and we've had at the most, I would say, upwards of 20 individuals. Um, and we've done a mixed model. So we've done physical offices, virtual offices, a few hybrid, and we're constantly changing. And I think that's what makes it exciting is that we get to play and experiment with many different ideas. And that's really what my interest is in terms of my involvement is uh, we get to innovate. That sounds really cool. And so our, our students, yeah, it sounds like it's the answer might just be, it depends to most of the questions I have about it. But um, do the, <laughs> do the, are the students in for a year and then you push them out of the next nest and say, go fly little bird or what? Well, the 
these are not students, right? These are licensed well, right, lawyers yeah. who are running a practice. And so it really is dependent on them. It depends on where they are in their practice. And once they develop typically a steady revenue stream, uh, we push them out and, and send them on their way. But the other thing I'll mention is that for many of these uh, practitioners, this is their perhaps one or last kick of the can. So mm-hmm. they say, you know what, I'm not entirely sure I want to practice. Um, maybe I can do it with you guys because it, it minimizes some of, some of my, my personal risk. And uh, if this doesn't work, maybe you can help me transition into either an in-house position or uh, to education or into business or to not practicing law at all. And so we've done a lot of that as well and just in terms of brainstorming solutions and figuring out ways to get people into entirely different profession streams altogether. I think it's such a cool idea. I, I see incubators popping up all over the place. There are there are bar associations who are doing them, there are law schools who are doing them, and there actually are legal aid organizations who are doing them. And I think it's such an interesting uh, and promising approach to getting people out of law school and into practice. So that's cool. And we're trying to learn from each other as well, because there are different models and different ways that we do this. So, you know, I am looking at many of those incubators across North America and trying to see what works, what doesn't work. And keeping in mind, we're not attached or affiliated with a large institution like a law school. So we have very, very limited resources. So that minimizes sort of what we can do. Well, and incubators have, this is... This is a good transition, really, because incubators have grown out of the changing legal market and the fact that, um, you know, you I, I saw that at one point you had talked about the the supply and why supply and demand doesn't really apply to the legal market, I think. Exactly. Well, I mean, I think this is the most businesses or most business models will simply look at a supply, supply and demand curve. So they'll say, you know, if, if you have uh, a large demand for a type of service or product, then you have price flexibility and you can move that price point higher. Mm-hmm. We don't see that type of traditional supply demand model operating in legal services. There's obviously a really, really high demand. And the reason why we can say that is because um, legal services are needed in society. We know that simply because we have uh, up to upwards of 70% of unrepresented litigants in many courts, both in Canada and the U.S. And these are not individuals who want to be self-represented. It's not like they just you know, got in the middle of a lawsuit and said, I'm as good as a lawyer, if not better. It's simply that they cannot afford the legal services. The demand is there, but the price point is not... Uh, effective for them or efficient for them. So uh, I I read, I'm reading an ABA book, um, a recently published ABA book called The Relevant Lawyer, and uh, Jordan Furlong has, uh, who is a, a legal futurist from up from Canada as well, and mm-hmm. he, he has a, a, an essay in there, and he talks about uh, it, exactly that figure you just stated. And in the U.S., in family court, I know that it's something like 80% of people in family court are are pro se. Exactly. And he actually he actually turned that upside down and and said that that was evidence that people don't necessarily need lawyers to use family courts, which I thought was interesting. Um, do we really think those people are doing just fine without representation? Yeah, I, I would disagree with Jordan. I do know Jordan. I respect his perspective and his opinion, but I would disagree because that would presume that these uh, self-represented litigants are doing as an effective job or a better job than the represented parties. And from the members of the bench, from the, the members of the judiciary that I speak to who actually are in family law, mm-hmm. they tell me quite the opposite message, right? So although... 
they're they're able to appear before court and perhaps go through some of the process. That process is not a smooth one, and it usually involves uh, enormous amount of judicial involvement. So think about not just the delays on behalf of the parties. So if you're a lawyer with an unrepresented side, uh, unrepresented party on the other side, this is going to be enormously challenging for you because they are not aware of what is a reasonable offer and what's not a reasonable offer. They second guess every single move. They're not willing to come to settlement terms very easily. Mm -hmm. So the delays beyond the parties themselves are also then transferred to the court, where the judge then has to slow things down, explain things to the self-represented litigant, um, and often deal with unnecessary steps and motions and procedures that would not occur if the party was represented. So this is, I, I, I don't necessarily agree with Jordan. I think this is actually part of the burden that we're imposing on the justice system, and therefore imposing on the taxpayers who are funding the justice system, because we don't have an effective and efficient legal system. Well, he also points out in his essay that, um, you know, the court system in around the world really is is not designed to be used by uh, by lay people. It's designed to be used by highly educated people who are members of the bar, and um, so it's not very user friendly for lay people. Which I think is why. So we have this. We have a huge demand for legal services. The access to justice gap keeps growing. Um, and we actually have a glut of lawyers on the market, but somehow that glut of lawyers is not turning into a supply that meets the demand. And I, I think it's, I, I guess, partly because you, you need trained lawyers, not just licensed lawyers. But, but I think uh, I wonder too is it's unavoidable to talk about price, and I just don't think you can offer legal services uh, in our current system for a price that actually starts to close the gap. I agree 100%. So part of that challenge is, as you mentioned, the current structure. And I think many of the, I mean, we're seeing some of these reforms where people are moving many of their issues to a small claims court or to an administrative tribunal. And that might be part of the solution where we take many of these disputes, these legal disputes, and put them in dispute resolution services or dispute resolution uh, systems that are far more effective and efficient. Okay, so that might be way part of it is restructuring the system, but that comes from the top down. Mm -hmm. And for anyone who's been involved in policy or in government, you know how difficult and bureaucratic it is. And uh, I've spoken to individuals, again, at the, at the highest levels of those um, types of changes, and they often say that the number one barrier or number one obstacle to enacting those changes is not even necessarily their internal bureaucracy or the red tape. It's the attorneys. It's the lawyers themselves who are saying there's no need for change. And the reason for that is the most senior members of the bar who often are involved in those conversations are also the ones who are already established, and they're the ones who have developed their entire business models on the existing system. Mm -hmm. So if you transform the legal system, you are disrupting and destroying their revenue streams. And so there isn't an incentive on their behalf to be involved in the conversation for change. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, one of the things that you said is I, I, it, people talk a little bit about changing the way we resolve disputes. It's, you know, Jordan touched on it with his comment about a system designed for experts, and, and you just talked about it as well. And you know, we, we talk a lot about how lawyers need to adapt to the future of law, but my concern, my, my what I wonder about is how might the courts and the system adapt? I mean, realizing that there's huge institutional momentum in the other direction, but like eventually courts who get enough wills from LegalZoom are going to have to start treating those 
uh, with some maybe some tolerance, uh, even if they aren't as always as perfectly drafted as what a lawyer would do. Um, on and that's just on the the short end of it. But in the bigger picture, like what if you know what if we start changing the way we resolve disputes or we start funneling disputes through a system that just doesn't even require lawyers. That seems to me that's totally possible. Yeah, I mean, there is some brainstorming, and in fact, not just brainstorming, some actual action occurring in this in the area of, uh, for example, online dispute resolution, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, and you can do this even perhaps with a, with a mediator. So part of this is rethinking the way that lawyers themselves provide the services, and it may not be providing services as an advocate, Right. On behalf of one side or another, it may be actually as an adjudicator, as a mediator, as an arbitrator, perhaps even through an online dispute resolution system where the expenses and the need for personal appearances are removed. I certainly think that's going to be part of the solution. Right, because if if courts are designed to be used by experts, then maybe the future of the court system is that they really are just used by experts and people who don't have experts are funneled through a different system. I mean, I think that, that sort of makes it like, you know what, if I can afford an expert, then I'm going to go to court. If I can't afford an expert, I'm going to use a second-tier or inferior dispute resolu- resolution system. And I don't think we need to go there. I think it should be really based on perhaps the complexity of the problems. Mm-hmm. And so experts should only be used for very, very complex legal issues and perhaps the type of legal issues. So I think what I'd like to see more of is what we call public-facing law. So the legal services that the general public typically face, whether be uh, criminal, civil litigation, personal injuries, small claims, those types of things, family law especially, uh, moving more towards a different type of system, whereas perhaps the more traditional corporate commercial um, type of disputes or perhaps even insurance disputes where there's a need for expert evidence, mm-hmm. that type of stuff, perhaps keep that in the expert-based legal dispute resolution system. That would actually make sense. Uh, so, you know, topical-based distinctions on this, not resource-based distinctions, because really the access to justice divide is coming in from, from a cost perspective and that the public cannot afford legal services. And I would hate to say, you know, what we have one type of justice or one type of legal system for the haves and an entirely different type of legal system for the have-nots. Well, that would be pretty unfortunate, although it wouldn't necessarily surprise me to see that happen. Um, uh, so, um, so what about cost? I mean, uh, you know, what what can lawyers do to find a client base that they can serve without ending up <laughs> within that demographic themselves by working themselves into the poorhouse? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the challenges we see with the lawyers that are incubating. They want, they want to actually provide these services to the public, and they want to find a price point that's reasonable, but at the same time, they have expenses, right? So it's like any kind of model, the higher your expenses, the higher you need to have your revenue. So what we often tell young practitioners who are starting out is minimize absolutely every single expense that you can imagine. So you have your fixed expenses like your law society or bar association dues. You're going to have insurance, but you don't necessarily have to have rent. That's almost a foregone conclusion for the older generation of lawyers. They say, well, you need an office, you need a secretary, you need this, you know, this is the, the bricks and mortar type of legal practice. And I think if, you, if you're willing to be a little bit flexible and say, look, I, I don't mind 
working in a Starbucks for five, six hours a day because I like the, the visual distractions and, and the creativity that I get working in that type of environment on my laptop. Um, you know, you've just cut your number one expense out of the equation entirely, and those cost savings can be passed on to the client. The next issue or the next major expense that most lawyers have is, is staff. Right? So whether it's uh, a secretary or a receptionist or a law clerk, um, I think the secretary or receptionist is sort of gone by the wayside because we have automated voicemail, we have VoIP systems where you can actually have things routed directly to your cell phone, even though it's going through a switchboard. So you can cut out those types of expenses without necessarily compromising on the service that you're providing to the client. Uh, you may need some assistance in terms of, um, you know, a law clerk or a paralegal to help you with document prep um, and drafting. And I think even that can be done without taking on the, the, the expense or the responsibility of a full-time staff person. And the way that you potentially would be able to do that is through contract work. So we have now virtual legal assistants who may be situated anywhere, hopefully in your jurisdiction because, you know, they'll be more familiar with the type of forms that you're using. But there's a lot more flexibility where you can actually procure per diem legal services or per diem assistance on a file. And the advantage of doing it in that way is that it's more than tied directly to the file and on a needs basis. And it can be actually tied into the file as a disbursement rather than as a fixed fee that you have to operate um, whether you have a busy month or a not busy month. And that's one of the biggest challenges is that the ups and downs of, of, of a running a practice, uh, it's usually when you're in the downs, you start looking around and say, why do I need this $10,000 oak table? Why do I need this really, really expensive office and this fully staffed office that's not really busy right now because we don't have enough files? It's, you know, it seems though there's a conflict here between uh, lawyers who really want to be successful and um, lawyers who want to serve access to justice. I, I mean, they're the, I, in my, in talking with, with people about how to have a successful law practice, I see some of the older lawyers in particular heaping scorn on younger lawyers who want to work from a coffee shop or um, are willing to get their business, you know, over internet searches or websites like Avo. And, um, and, and a lot of that scorn comes from the fact that you get a lot of, you know, uh, nickel and dimey clients that way. And, and some of those clients are the highest maintenance clients, but at the same time, those are probably the many of those clients are the people who fall into the the access to justice gap. And so, um, I mean, can you really have a successful law practice serving uh, serving smaller clients like that or smaller files like that, I guess? Well, invariably, I think, yeah, I mean, it's possible. I think it's definitely challenging for the reasons that you've mentioned. Uh, many of those individuals who procure legal services in the manner that you described often tend to be uh, challenging in a number of ways, not just in how they handle a file, but also are, I would say, more likely to perhaps sue a lawyer after the conclusion of a file or if an outcome is, is less than desirable. So. <laughs> right. Those are definitely challenges. I mean, can you make a living, though? I think you can. Yeah. It comes down to, again, your, your, your expenses and your revenue. And if you make sure that your expenses are really bare-bone minimum, it's possible. As for the scorn, this uh, 
sort of heaped upon these practitioners by the established uh, lawyers. Well, I think the point is that many of those traditional business models are going to become obsolete. The market itself is changing, and they don't have the incentive to change because they're looking at retirement within the next 10 years. So, I mean, they can continue to, to take their scorn all the way to retirement. That's not the challenge that those of us that are newer to the profession uh, or even in the middle of our, you know, sort of mid-career uh, are really facing. We need to be thinking about the future. We need to be thinking about the changes that are coming because those changes are going to affect our, uh, our business in the, in, the, in, the, in the immediate to long term. And so we have to be concerned about that because we're not ready for retirement. Well, and I suppose, you know, there are only so many high-value clients and there are only so many lawyers who can serve those high-value clients. And so if you want to have a, a successful practice as a lawyer and, and you turn out not to be one of the ones who is going to be representing those high-value clients, then you have to figure out how to make your way. Yeah. Is is a is a pattern for how to do this starting to emerge? How to have a practice where you serve, um, I guess, medium income people or or medium value clients? Because that's what it, that's what the gap is, right? It, it's these aren't yep. these aren't low income. They're not the lowest income anyway. These are everyday people who just can't come up with three thousand dollars to pay a retainer on short notice, which is most of my neighbors, <laughs> you yeah, know, it's exactly. not, it's not an unusual thing. Yeah, it's the communities that we live in. And I think it's the people that we deal with every day. It's the people that we walk by every day uh, in the streets. Those are the people that we, we live amongst and yet we can't uh, service them. So in terms of how to effectively do that, well, a lot of that is through the same techniques that have been used by larger law firms. So it's going to be a lot of repetition, a lot of automation, and perhaps using technology to accomplish both of those. And volume, right? So I think that's... Sorry, go ahead. And volume, right? You need more clients. And volume. You do need volume. Anything that's going to be you know, lower um, in terms of revenue profile, you do need more volume. So you have to up the volume. And perhaps uh, you don't spend as much time sitting there and counseling every single one of those clients personally about all of their issues. So you need to be a little bit more effective and efficient. And I think part of that is also having like a roster of uh, experts, and I'll say experts not for the use of litigation, but expert resources. So referring your clients to a social worker or to a psychologist or to other individuals who can better take care of those emotional, psychological uh, needs that they're going to really have if they're going through something difficult. So I think that's, that's part of it is knowing what your role is as a lawyer is to address the legal issues, acknowledging and fully, you know, uh, being aware of the fact that they are going to be experiencing other things. And when you see those types of signs, being able to push that off, not just to wash your hands of it, but to say, look, identify that there's a need here for you, and I need you to actually uh, look into these services. And building those relationships with those professionals to um, ensure that those individuals, your clients, are taken care of when you refer them on to them. So that's definitely going to be part of it. Uh, and, and I do want to go back, Sam, to, to what you were referring to, which is it's not just, uh, let's say, the medium or low-end type of client where these changes are being affected. I think the high net worth clients are also scratching their heads and saying, does it really make sense to continue to procure legal services in the way that we've been doing this historically? So although it's not something that we service directly, I know many of our uh, colleagues are already seeing those shifts where you have, uh, let's say, 
medium to large law firm associates or partners leaving and doing a lateral shift to you know these new or innovative type of practices also developed in a dispersed or virtual model. And what they're telling these clients, whether they be banks or large corporations, they're saying, look, we have our credentials. We've been working on these types of files for the past 10 to 15 years. We can provide you the comparable services. We can do exactly the same type of work, but we can do it for a fraction of the cost. And, and I'm already seeing those types of shifts happening. And so I think the model is being disrupted. Um, but, I mean, those are not the necessarily the access to justice type of issues. But I think the change is happening across the board. You know, it seems impossible to talk about access to justice without talking about scale, which inevitably leads to a discussion of alter- alternative business structures, meaning non-lawyer ownership. Mm-hmm. Do you think non-lawyer ownership has an important role to play in in uh, increasing or closing the gap? There's a huge controversy right now in Canada about uh, ABS or alternative business services. Uh, there's, there's some challenges, without question. I mean, uh, I think if you're starting to bring in non-lawyers, non-attorneys into the legal services model, what does that mean for the service that we provide? And so... More specifically, as lawyers, we have a duty to our courts, to our justice system. We have professional responsibilities, and those professional responsibilities do not necessarily carry over to individuals who are not part of our profession. As a regulatory function, the regulatory bodies, whether it be law society in Canada or the Bar Association in the U.S., simply doesn't have within their mandate or within their jurisdiction to actually proper regulate, properly regulate those uh, non-professionals. Uh, I, I sort of take a step back and I say, well, it doesn't mean as a creature of statute or as a creature of regulation that it would be impossible to do so. And so although... I think there are some challenges when it comes to ABS. There are ways in which that could potentially be addressed. And and I think this is where one of the distinctions legally uh, between Canada and the U.S. comes in. We don't have, and this uh, comes out of several decisions out of the Supreme Court of Canada, we don't have the same notion of shareholder primacy as as, uh, is observed in the U.S. through the Revlon line of cases. So the Supreme Court of Canada has said that the primary duty of the directors of a corporation is to the corporation, not necessarily to the shareholders. And so what that means is that those interests may include shareholder primacy, but it may also include other factors like environmentalism or duty to creditors or suppliers and the relationship in the, in the industry generally. So you can actually develop corporations whose explicit mandate is to promote access to justice. You know, that's becoming more common in the U.S. too. Uh, it, here we're calling them B corporations, mm-hmm. and the, the, the B stands for benefit, uh, which doesn't have to be uh, – it depends on the state, uh, how they interpret it. So uh, Minnesota now has B corps, and um, people are getting pretty excited about it because you can state in your founding documents, um, you know, we, we are also – as part of our business, we are going to promote, uh, you know, local, uh, local food or – uh, in Minnesota, we're pretty loose about it. We, you can promote, you know, uh, microbreweries in in Minnesota if you want to, um, <laughs> but uh, but but it allows you to do something besides maximize shareholder value without going full nonprofit. And so, it's an interesting option for law firms. And I know that uh, I think an incubator was one of the first B corps that was started. So that's not surprising at all. 
not surprising at all. And I think you know what, if we look at those, if those corporations are are potentially taking investment, I think there's room there as well because uh, if you look at the trend towards ethical investment, and this is not just in North America, around the world, investors are really saying, you know what, it might be great that I'm going to get a better return from investing into arms, for example, into, mm-hmm. into the military industry, but it's not what part, uh, necessarily resonates with me personally in terms of my values. And so even though I want to get a return on my investment, even though I want to invest in the market, I want that investment to actually be in an ethical type of organization. I want to actually have an emotional, a cognitive, psychological connection to where my money is going. And so people are voting not just at the, at the ballots, they're not just voting for their local representatives, they're voting through where they choose to allocate their money. And so especially when we start seeing this being done by, uh, let's say, um, organizations have, who have the ability to do this in the aggregate form, so whether it be a union or a pension fund, uh, we're actually seeing that they're able to make significant, significant shifts in the market and the way that corporations are operating because ethically investing is becoming increasingly a priority for investors generally. So uh, I think there's room for all of us in the market to be able to champion perhaps not just access to justice but just making a better society by the way that we structure our capital. But how does how does capital magically bring down prices? That's what I'm. I've, I mean, there's no reason you couldn't build uh, a, a solely lawyer-owned business um, with plenty of capital that operates at scale to meet uh, the needs of people who fall into the gap. Um, what is it? What is it about non-lawyer ownership that we think is going to all of a sudden make? prices go down and efficiency go up and all that kind of stuff. Well, I don't think it is automatic, right? And that's exactly the point. The the resistance to alternative business structures really comes from the, the the notion that lawyers can do everything. And, and perhaps we can, you know? I mean, I think attorneys and lawyers are increasingly becoming more sophisticated. We find that, you know, with the competitiveness of law school, many individuals who are now getting called to the bar or becoming uh, licensed are individuals who have previous business backgrounds and other things that they're putting in terms into their bag of tricks. So, you know, I think over time, perhaps we would be able to develop these things if we had the opportunity. But at the same time, there might be a, a better way and a more effective way to do it by bringing in not just outside capital, but outside capital with individuals who may have an MBA degree or, you know, other types of skill sets, project management skills, um, which will allow us to actually rethink the way that we're doing things. It's a common phenomenon that we see in organizational behavior, behavior generally, which is groupthink, right? We all belong to the same profession. We're surrounded by people who are doing the same, things the same way. And so it's very, very easy easy psychologically or cognitively to turn around and say, well, let's continue doing it this way. Or if we do want to change, we're only taking one or two steps away from that initial business model. Someone coming in with absolutely no background or experience or very limited background, let's say, in terms of um, how things are done will allow us to maybe take a step back entirely and rethink the way that we provide legal services. And that may not necessarily be a bad thing. Now, I'm not necessarily an advocate for alternative business structures or capital investment, I simply say, let's have that conversation. There are some jurisdictions around the world that are trying this out, that are experimenting with it, and and let's keep an open mind and perhaps see if it could uh, not only enhance our profession, but also promote the ultimate goal of access to justice as well. So I think this is probably my final question here, and and this is, uh, 
I'm I hate I'm I'm always nervous to bring this up because I think it's kind of an elephant in the room. But maybe our ethical rules are too stringent to allow prices to drop. I mean, I, I my obligation to my clients is actually quite high. Um, I am a fiduciary. I I usually I used to tell my clients that when they signed the retainer, their problem became my problem, which was true. I mean that you know I was taking over their the responsibility for whatever legal problem they had, and sometimes some associated non legal problems. And um, that's not something that I'd be willing to do cheaply. And so I wonder, are, are we asking too much of lawyers if we want prices to drop? Well. It doesn't necessarily. I think that, I think we should maintain that. I mean, there has to be some sort of value attached to being a, a lawyer or using that label as a lawyer, and it doesn't necessarily mean that that value has to translate into high cost of legal services. It really doesn't. Um, and the reason why I say this is because we're we're looking at the threshold or the precipice of radical transformation across the legal industry in a way that may actually make lawyers obsolete. And there's a lot of um, authors who have written on this topic in terms of what this might mean for us as a profession. Mm -hmm. And so we have to sort of sit there and think about if we don't have some value added to either uh, to a client or even to a corporation, because you can be an in-house corporate, in-house lawyer or general counsel providing the same type of value. Uh, if you're not providing that special value, then what's the point of having a lawyer at all? Right. Because many of the functions that we're going to be providing will potentially be provided by individuals who are not part of our profession at all. I mean, if you look at just risk management alone, it's a booming industry. It's been around for a long time. But um, more and more corporations and companies are simply saying, well, you know what? We want to preemptively or proactively address many of the potential legal issues, let's say in the hiring or firing process, through our human resources department rather than through our legal department. Now, I think most lawyers who are servicing that type of uh, client would say, you know what, that's probably a good thing. That's actually in your interest as a client to proactively deal with your legal issues. Mm -hmm. But wouldn't we want to have a lawyer in that HR department? Wouldn't we want to actually have some sort of general counsel or legal advice, that value added, that responsibility that you're talking about, provided to that company in order to ensure that uh, they're actually doing things properly? And so I think there might actually be a way to reduce the number of legal issues and disputes that we have in society, not just in the area of human resources and employment, by proactively addressing these concerns. And I think you mentioned, for example, wills and stuff like that that are being developed by some of these companies in an automated fashion. Well, why can't we have those automated wills before they're actually signed still being reviewed by a lawyer? Um, you know, in a cursory fashion, but also being you know identifying or flagging if there are any any particular issues there. We can still be able to meet our professional responsibilities, in my opinion, if we think a little bit more creatively about what our responsibility is and carving out uh, perhaps part of what our responsibility is and what it isn't. And and the way that we've seen that happening in the market is what we call unbundled services. So that means I'm not responsible for my client in the entirety of your file. My retainer agreement, and this is actually, you know, it depends on the jurisdiction whether or not you can do this. My retainer agreement spells out explicitly that I am responsible for simply reviewing the documents. Or my responsibility is simply showing up to court for the court appearances. You do all the legal work yourself. You actually do all the legal research yourself. That terrifies me, by the way. Yeah, yeah no, that terrifies uh, me too. <laughs> the third, third option that we're seeing is my job 
as a lawyer, as an attorney, is going to be to advise you as a client about litigation strategy and perhaps particular approaches. But at the end of the day, the responsibility for this file is yours. Hmm. Okay, so it's carving out very, very explicitly in a retainer agreement, and this has to be done carefully, what the responsibility is. And that's how you add value to the client. It's also how you allow an individual to maintain a lot more of the autonomy and the expense, you know, taking on the expense themselves in terms of doing the work for the legal file while being able to benefit from the specialized expertise of legal services. Yeah, I mean, I, I did a lot of unbundled services and I loved it. And uh, I, I've always talked about it in the, in the sense of, you know, people talk about doing the same work for less money, which you can only go so far before you hit bottom, and the bottom that you hit is not necessarily what people are willing to pay. Um, so why not do less work for less money um, or yeah. less work for the same money on if you were going to, or maybe even a little bit more money if you were going to add it up on an hourly basis or something, which is a pretty compelling way to drop prices, and maybe there just aren't enough lawyers willing to unbundle right now. Um, although I know it's it's obviously getting more popular. but Yeah, I agree. So I, I think it's part of it is the risk management perspective as a lawyer, as a practitioner. How do we do it without inadvertently overlooking issues that we probably should catch? And I think there is some questions there about how unbundling services is done in effective and efficient way from the perspective of the lawyer or the attorney. So if someone were interested in starting a practice and focusing on affordable legal services, they should start by um, keeping their expenses as low as possible and um, being open to things like outsourcing or uh, contract work for, for defined tasks. Mm-hmm. They, should be, uh, they should be looking at uh, alternative billing models like unbundled services, flat fees, yeah. things like that. What I mean, what else? If somebody wanted to go out today and start working on an, on a, 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 a an affordable legal services practice where they could make a living off of it, what else should they be doing? Well, the number one thing, and it sounds sort of counterintuitive, but I also usually strongly recommend. Uh, having a day job, okay? This might sound totally, totally counterintuitive, but start out by having a day job and slowly ramp up your legal practice. Don't be dependent on providing legal services to make rent because that's going to be enormously stressful. So work in whatever capacity you can find anywhere else, okay? I've had, for example, criminal practitioners who are just starting out working as a bartender. Mm-hmm. And sort of sounds like, well, why would I go to law school and then become a bartender? Well, the bar that they choose to actually work at uh, was frequented by a type of clientele who, over a period of time, uh, realized that this individual was a lawyer and attorney and started to procure their services. And that's actually where they started to build up their client base was as a bartender. Well, the first lawyer I worked for said he, he built his practice by going out and partying every night and handing out business cards. <laughs> so <laughs> there you go. that makes total sense to me. Yeah. So there's lots of ways to do this, and I think part of it is is uh, just being courageous enough. So if I can close with a quote, uh, I was listening to a uh, Boston Consulting Group TED Talk recently where uh, Patty McCord had basically said that you can start your innovation journey by questioning the why of what we do. And she also said, it's your career own it. And I think if all of us were you know, just getting out there and doing things, decided to own our career and started questioning about everything that we do as a profession, we might actually be start to see that change and also be able to find those opportunities that perhaps appear elusive to us at this current time. I think that's an excellent place to end. Thank you so much for being with me today, Omar. My pleasure, Sam. 
This episode of the Lawyers Podcast is brought to you by Ruby Receptionists. Ruby answered the phones for my law practice for a couple of years. And here's the thing. When I was answering the phone, I was often distracted. I might be in the middle of reading a brief that pissed me off from opposing counsel uh, or dealing with something stressful or that I really needed to focus on. And so the phone rings. It's an interruption. Kind of drives me crazy. And I'm never at my best. That's not the face I wanted to put forward to clients. So when I got Ruby, the whole thing changed for two reasons. First, because uh, the ladies at Ruby are fantastic on the phone. They're cheerful, they're friendly, they're helpful. And what happened is that people would regularly say, wow, I just had such a great experience with your receptionist. And second, because my instructions were that anybody who asked for me by name should be put straight through to me. The way that happens is it's a soft transfer, meaning the first person I hear from is a receptionist from Ruby who says, hi, this is so-and-so from Ruby Receptionists. I've got so-and-so on the phone and they're calling about this. Should I put them through? And so I have the opportunity to say, no, tell them to call this person. Tell them I'll call them back later. Please take a message or sure, put them through and I'll talk to them. And just that little bit of buffer meant that by the time I got on the phone, I was prepared for the conversation and I could be in a much better mood. Hiring somebody to pick up my phones and answer my phones for me that is as friendly and professional and helpful as Ruby was one of the best things I did for my practice and for my sanity and productivity. So you should check out Ruby and you've got no reason not to because it's free for 14 days. And if you check them out by going to callruby.com slash lawyerist, They will also waive the setup fee should you decide to stick with them. And if you sign up for the trial, they will take good care of you, and I'm pretty sure you will want to hire them in the end. So go to callruby.com slash lawyerist and find out for yourself. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening.